0: I want to suggest to you that we have a love-hate relationship with the idea of imitation. No one that I know of likes imitation products, right? We don't like imitation crab. We don't like imitation flavors. We were offended at the idea of imitation Rolexes. Imitation implies fake and inferior. However, it is true, isn't it, that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. There's a reason that there is no market for imitation Timex, but there is one for Rolex. Now, of course, it's not just products that are imitated. We imitate people. Imitation in that sense, the imitation of people actually is hardwired into us. Children learn almost everything they learn in those first four or five years through imitation of their parents, beginning with language. This is um, kind of bad news for us as parents, right? It's not just nature that causes an apple to not fall far from the tree. No, it is nurture. They have seen us repeat things over and over and over again. And we have, whether we went to or not, kind of drilled it into them. That's, that's humbling for me as a parent. Of course, as we get older, we get to uh, choose for ourselves our own role models who we're going to imitate. So uh, as children grow up, teenagers begin to look and dress and talk more like their friends than their parents. You go through that whole phase, it takes a little while. It's probably not into until you're into well into your 20s that things kind of begin to settle down. And it's at that point that imitation is no longer just flattery. Imitation is revelatory. Because by the time we're young adults, we are clearly imitating who, and what we value. It's as true of people as it is of watches. Our role models, the people that we imitate, especially once we're into our our adulthood, our role models are literally an index to our hearts. This morning, we've come to the climax and conclusion of Paul's kind of first argument in the book of 1 Corinthians, his argument against partisan division in the church. And it actually comes down to to the fact that the Corinthians have been thinking about their leaders. They've been thinking about their role models all wrong. And so as we consider what he has to say this morning about who is worth imitating, I want you to consider your own role models. And I want you to consider what they reveal about who or what you value most. So turn with me, if you would, to First Corinthians chapter 4. First Corinthians 4. This is found on page 1013. 1013 in those black Bibles that are in the pews and chairs around you. First Corinthians chapter 4. Let me just catch you up to where we've been because we're really coming to the conclusion of a long extended argument that Paul has been making. We we saw that last week, Paul concluded concluded the negative part of his argument against dividing over their favorite preachers. He's been telling them, don't think this way. He's basically argued up until now that we should be uniters, not dividers, because our unity is in the message of the gospel, not the messengers of the gospel. And so he's called us to grow up To stop squabbling over preachers and instead be part of the building of the church, not the wrecking of the church. That's my quick summary of the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians. Now he turns and he explains, okay, how should you think about these preachers? How how should you think about your, your favorite leaders? And more importantly, how should you relate to them as role models? rather than as partisan leaders, that you're kind of planting your flag by their side and taking your identity from them? How should you relate to your leaders? And here's here's his point. We'll put it on the screen. Servants of the gospel suffer for the gospel. And so should you. Servants of the gospel suffer for the gospel. And so should you. We're going to look at each phrase in turn because that's the way Paul's argument unfolds. So, so first he talks about these servants of the gospel. This is point one, servants of the gospel. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. A person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. It's of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes. who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. All right. Having told them how not to think about him and Apollos and Peter, Paul now tells them what they should think, and they should not think of their favorite preachers as celebrities from whom they derive status through their kind of partisan association, a kind of vicarious status, because I'm with this celebrity or I'm with that celebrity. No, he says, you should think of us as servants of Christ and managers, or like an older word we would have used is stewards of the mysteries of God. What are the mysteries of God? He's already talked to us about that in previous chapters. It's the gospel. And Paul goes on to say then there in verse two, if they're servants and stewards, the only standard for their evaluation is the standard of faithfulness. You see that there in verse two, in this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. Now it's at this point that I think I've kind of avoided talking about this, but I just need to say a word, a little short word about the celebrity culture of oratory that Paul was up against in Corinth. These orators, these, these wise men were, were men who made their living competing with other orators for public acclaim and paying students. They were hired guns. They were very skilled at their craft they were immensely entertaining. And they would give a speech to persuade people about anything. They kind of didn't care what the topic was, so long as the price was right, so long as the fee was there. Now, Apollos was was known for his oratorical skills. In fact, he may have even been trained as one of these orators before he became a Christian. And, and so apparently, using worldly standards, some of the Corinthians were judging Paul as inferior. They might have even assumed that Paul and Apollos were competing for fans, like ordinary orators would. And, and as a result, there in the church in Corinth. Like factions were developing around the preachers according to their skill and, and status was claimed for the party that you were with. And I don't know about you, but this sounds so deeply familiar. It sounds just like today. As MacArthurites claim one thing and Piperites claim another thing and Kellerites claim another thing. And everybody kind of defines themselves according to their favorite preacher. I'm humble enough to don't, I, I actually don't think there are any lawrence but if there are, cut it out. Well, Paul not only rejects that worldly standard, he actually rejects the Corinthians' ability to judge him at all. Did you see that there in verse three? It's of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Paul doesn't care what they think of him. He, he doesn't even care what he thinks of himself. He, he, he thinks his own judgment of his own ministry is frankly worthless. He's not working for their approval, and he's not working for his own approval. He says, I, I don't know of anything against myself, but, but his, his, he says his justification, that is to say his vindication is not in their approval or in his own conscience. It's in the Lord because he says there in verse four, it is the Lord who judges me. It's the Lord who's going to decide what the value of my ministry was. It's it's the Lord who's going to decide whether what I'm doing is worthwhile or not. As Paul points out, that judgment is still in the future when the Lord returns. He says, don't, don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, right? Because on the last day, the Lord is going, going to bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. In other words, The Lord's assessment of my ministry and John Piper's ministry and John MacArthur's ministry and Mark Dever's ministry and everybody's ministry, the Lord's assessment is not going to be based on superficial knowledge or partial knowledge. He knows the intentions of the heart. He knows the things that are hidden. So we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves Passing judgment on the effectiveness of this person's ministry or or the worth of that man's work based on apparent success. Because the last day will reveal the true character and worth of each man's ministry. Paul makes very clear on that day, the only one whose praise even matters will give it to whom it is due. And that's God. So let me just say really clearly, and here I'm really speaking to the members of this church, Henson Baptist Church. I don't work for you. I don't work for you. I mean, you pay my salary. Thank you. And you do, you have legitimate expectations on my time, my energy Cause you pay my salary and you can fire me. Please, I, I hope you don't, but you can, and I'll defend your right to do that. But I said this 13 years ago when I was candidating here at Henson, and I'll just say it again today because we're in first Corinthians four. I don't work for you. I don't finally answer to you. I'm not going to give an account to you in any way that truly matters. As an elder of this church, and so this is true of all the other elders, I answer to God. He's the one who gives me my job description, regardless of what the search committee put in front of me 13 years ago. He writes the job description. And he's the one who will perform the only, like, job performance evaluation, that matters. And he will perform it. It's really important that I don't forget that. And it's really important that you don't forget that. It's important that I don't forget it because if I forget who I actually work for, who I finally answer to, do you know what will happen? I will start fearing you. I will start pandering to you because I want you to like me. I don't want you to fire me. And so as I learn more and more about what you want and what you don't want, what you like and what you don't like, uh, me and my flesh, I'm going to start giving you more of that and less of this other thing. But pandering to your desires, pandering to your flesh, pandering to, I don't know, what entertains you most, that does not get you to heaven. That, that, that That doesn't help you put the flesh to death and put on Christ more and more. So I need to not forget this for your benefit. But you need to not forget it either. You need to not ever forget that I don't work for you because otherwise you might begin to have the wrong expectations you might begin to apply the, the kind of the wrong metric to evaluate the work of this church and the work of me and the rest of the elders. You might begin to think, well, I, I, you know, I walked away this Sunday and I didn't feel good. I think I should feel good. I'm paying. Or I walked away this Sunday and, you, you know, uh, the, the elder didn't, uh, like none of the elders talked to me this week at church. I mean, never mind that they're like over 400 of you, but I, I, I didn't get talked to this week, and I should be talked to. Or I'm not sure the senior pastor knows my name yet. If you're thinking that it might be true, sorry. You, you see, we, all of us, might begin to think about this wrongly, from my perspective and from yours it's crucially important that we not forget this simple truth. It is the Lord who judges your pastor. It is the Lord who judges your elders. What is the standard that you and I both should be using to think about the elders' work in this church? Paul couldn't be clear, right? The standard is faithfulness. Faithfulness to the gospel. Faithfulness to Christ. Faithfulness to the word of God. I think this is a hard one for Americans, for me, for you, for all of us, because we're all at root deeply pragmatic, right? We're used to evaluating something by whether or not it works. And how do you know it works? Well, you should be able to measure it. We assume that we should be able to measure success using the kinds of things that we can measure, right? So we think a pastor is doing his job well if there are more bucks in the offering plate and there are more butts in the pews this year than last year, right? We want to see a growing number of both of those things, bucks and butts. And then we think, well, if those things are growing then the pastor's doing his job. Well, okay. I mean, yeah, everyone would like to see numerical growth and financial growth. there's, There's nothing inherently wrong with either of those things. But Paul reminds us that we should not confuse those things with what the Lord is going to reward on the last day. Remember, he talked about this back in chapter three, verse 14. He talked about if anyone's work, referring to the, the work of an elder or a pastor, if anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. Well, we, we should not assume that what we can measure is what the Lord is rewarding. What's required, says Paul there in verse two, is faithfulness. And in that, he sounds a lot like Jesus, I think. It's the same point that Jesus makes in his parable of the talents. It's it's told in slightly different versions uh, in most of the gospels, which tells me that Jesus probably said this particular parable quite often. The the master entrusts talents, money to to three different servants. And and what's so interesting is that, you know, two of the servants get commended at the end, but the, the master doesn't commend the servant's for how much they earned while he was away. That's what we would do. You you know, the guy that got five talents, he doubled the money and he he earned five more. And and the second guy, he was given two talents and he doubled the money. He got two more, but five is more than two. And so if we're telling the parable, the the guy who, who earned five talents gets a better reward than the guy who earned Two talents. I mean, he should get rewarded, but not the same as the guy that earned five, right? That's not the way Jesus tells the story. No, they're not commended for how much they earned. They're rewarded exactly the same. Because what's rewarded is their faithfulness. Matthew 25, verse 21 and 23 read the same. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. That's what we're looking for. That's that's what you and I together should be doing as we try to evaluate the work of Henson Baptist Church and the work of your elders. Do we see faithfulness? Now, since you're not the judge, since the Lord is the judge, does that mean anything goes? Does that mean that the elders are beyond human evaluation? Not at all. If the standard is faithfulness, actually Paul has spent quite a bit of time in these first few chapters explaining to us what faithfulness looks like. It looks in chapter one, verse 23, like, like preaching Christ crucified for the Jew, uh, ver- Verse 22, for the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. It, it it looks like rejecting dependence on on worldly wisdom and and forsaking manipulative speech in order to get more people into this room. So so chapter two, verse one, Paul says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit's power. So that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. And of course, as we saw last week, it looks like building carefully on the foundation of the gospel and none other. Chapter three, verse 10 Uh, Paul says, according to God's grace that was given to me, I've laid a foundation as a skilled master builder and another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. So what you should expect of your elders is that we are striving for faithfulness in these ways. And what you should be doing, the, the way you help the, the staff, the pastors, the elders in this is encourage faithfulness, encourage faithfulness, and define faithfulness the way Paul does, like encourage faithfulness. And, and and then together, we we need to guard against anything that distracts from faithfulness. I mean, this is in part why the elders are recommending a, a revision to our statement of faith from the one that we have now, which is good and has served us well, but, but to a new one that we think will provide a better foundation and be a better guard for faithfulness in, in the coming hundred years, if the Lord gives us that much time. And this, this is why we as a church support the work of Nine Marks, and Simeon Trust. It's why I take some of my time that you're paying for, and I invest it in other pastors that are not building up our church, right? Right? It's it comes really kind of out of self interest, self interested conviction. It is easier to be faithful if the churches around us are also faithful. It is hard to be faithful in these matters if we're the only one. And everybody else is going a different way. And so it's actually worth it to us to invest in churches outside our own. Because it will help us make it easier and more encouraging for us to follow Christ faithfully. It's, it's why our elder process is so slow. And, and honestly, you know, lately, as many of you know that have been around for a while, you, the congregation, have helped us make it even slower. <laughs> and, and hopefully, therefore, better. Because we're not looking for the most popular men in the church. If we were just looking for the most popular men in the church, that's easy to see. You see that real quick. You just have to hang out here for a couple of Sundays. No, what we're looking for is the faithful men in this church. And that takes time to see. It takes, takes time for us to see it. It takes time for you to see it. Preachers, elders, pastors, are servants of the gospel. That's point one. But according to Paul, servants of the gospel are second, people who suffer for the gospel. Servants of the gospel suffer for the gospel. And honestly, as he's going to point out, it's one of the best ways to tell who those servants are. Look at at verse six of chapter four. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another, for who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? You are already full, you are already rich. You've begun to reign as kings without us, and I wish you did reign, so that we could also reign with you. For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place, like men condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. We'll stop there. Paul now tells them why they need to understand how to think about he and Apollos and and their ministry. He says it's for their benefit so that they'll understand the meaning of the saying there in verse six, nothing beyond what is written. Okay. So what's that? No one knows. I'm telling you, like no one's quite sure what he's referring to with that phrase. It's not from the old Testament. He's not quoting scripture. He seems to be quoting some sort of maxim or proverb It could be that he's referring just to the Old Testament generally, in which case the meaning of the phrase would be something like, your lives should be governed by the scriptures, and and you shouldn't go beyond the scriptures. It could be that Paul is referring to the specific Old Testament texts that he's already cited. We've looked at those as we've we've been moving through, all of which have had to do with this, this issue of worldly wisdom versus God's wisdom. And if that's the case, if he's referring to the scriptures he's just cited, the the meaning would be something like, don't try to add to the wisdom that God has revealed in his word, specifically in the cross and the gospel. Or he may be referring to something else entirely that we don't know. The good news is he actually explains his point in the next sentence. The purpose of the lesson is that None of you will be arrogant, favoring one person, one preacher over another in order to, to gain status and, and exalt yourself. The, the image there of being arrogant is the image of being inflated like a balloon. They, the problem is they're, they're, they're self-inflated. They're high on their own gas. They're literally puffed up. And Paul says, it's ridiculous. Why would you consider yourself superior to anyone else in the church? After all, verse seven, what do you have that you didn't receive? Justification, being right with God, by grace, it's a gift. Sanctification, being being made more like Jesus Christ, oh yeah, by grace, that's a gift too. Adoption into God's family, being a son, a daughter of God, gift, grace. Grace. How about those great spiritual gifts that you have? Because you guys have all of them. Oh yeah, it's in the word. Gift. Grace. How about this gospel ministry that God's given you in Corinth or here in Portland? Oh oh, yeah, just in the way I said it. Yeah. Mm, Gift. How, how, How about hope of heaven? Yeah. Grace again. As a Christian, anything that you could point to about yourself, anything that you might be tempted to take pride in, whether natural or supernatural, all of it you have received as a gift. So tell me what there is to boast about. Tell me exactly what it is to be proud about. This is what they were doing. They were boasting. You you, you see there um, in in verse eight, they claim to be full, literally satiated. He uses a word that is going to describe what many of us will feel like and regret feeling like on Thanksgiving day, right? Stuffed, absolutely full. They have no more need for spiritual food, no more teaching. They have arrived. They are rich spiritually. They are reigning as kings, we're told in verse eight. You know, and the the thing is, in one sense, that's true, right? It's true of Christians. In Christ, we have been given the richest affair. In Christ, our souls are satisfied. In, In Christ, we are even now reigning with him because he is seated at the right hand of God. So yeah, in one sense, all of that is true. But the Corinthians were taking it a step further. They were engaging in what we might call overrealized eschatology, as if heaven had already arrived. Now, this is going to come up again and again in the book of Corinthians. We will see it most strikingly when, when some of them claimed that their, I mean, their eschatology, their sense that the end has already come, is so overrealized that they say, yeah, the resurrection's already happened. But, but the point here is they're assuming that their favorite preacher, their favorite teacher has gotten them to this point. That's why they're so rich. That's why they're so full because their teacher, the party that they're associated with has gotten them to a higher plane than everybody else. Paul wishes it were true in one sense, because he knows that if they really were reigning the way they want to be, then he would be right there with them. The end really would have come and they would be reigning together with Christ. But he knows it's not true. The day of the Lord is still in the future. They have not arrived. And so Paul, quite sarcastically, I tried to bring that out in the way I read it, he quite sarcastically contrasts his own experience as an apostle I mean, if there's something to boast in, right? But he contrasts his experience as an apostle with the Corinthians. Paul says that God has put the apostles there in verse nine on display before the watching world and the angels like a spectacle of God's power. They, he says, are in last place like men condemned to die. Now, he's actually referring to something that is not common in our experience, but would have been really common for anybody who lived in a major Roman city of the day like Corinth. It's, it's the scene of the triumphal procession. You see, not just in Rome, but in lots of cities, there would have been an arena. And at the arena, that's where they would put on the gladiatorial games. And whenever there were those gladiatorial games or, or whenever a conquering general returned home, there would be this triumphant procession and the conquering general would be at the lead and then the mayor and the governor, whoever the great potentates and, and rulers of the city, they would be at the beginning of the procession, marching into the arena. But at the very end, in last place, would be all the prisoners condemned to die in the arena. As a spectacle, it's the word we get theater from. As a, as a dramatic display of Rome's power and might. Paul says, this is what God has done with the apostles. They're not at the front of the procession, like the Corinthians imagined themselves to be, as conquering generals and reigning kings. No, they're at the end, under sentence of death. And what's so amazing about Paul's description of this here is that Paul actually embraces that role. He says, we we become fools for Christ. Fools for Christ in his suffering. In contrast to the Corinthians in their worldly wisdom. Paul suffers the dishonor of the gospel. Gladly, joyfully preaching a crucified savior, rather than the honor that the Corinthians imagined for themselves and their exalted status, having arrived through their great teacher. Paul goes on to catalog what his suffering and dying for the sake of the gospel looks like. There in verse 11 and 12, it looks like hunger and thirst, poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless because they're always on the road taking the gospel to the next city, working to support themselves. Their, their message means that week in and week out, day in and day out, they are reviled and persecuted and slandered. But how do they respond? They don't respond in kind. No, verse 12, they, they respond with blessing and in endurance and with grace. They are considered as nothing more than garbage, the scum of the earth. That's what Paul endured. He Endured it gladly, joyfully embracing it you know, it's not just Paul. What else does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus. Who said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Who endured the rough treatment of the crowd at his crucifixion. Who was reviled and slandered, Peter tells us, but did not return. Evil words for evil words, but instead blessed. Paul not only preached the message of Christ, but he lived the message of Christ. Gladly recapitulating in his own life the message of the man that he proclaimed. this is what it looks like to be a servant of the gospel. It's to suffer for the sake of the gospel. It's to endure the world's opposition. It is to give up the world's comforts and luxuries. And most of all, it is to give up the world's acclaim and esteem. Didn't Jesus warn us, tell us that we would be treated the same way he was? And yet to take heart because he has overcome the world. To be a servant of the gospel is to be conformed to the person that the gospel is all about. And that must mean to suffer for the gospel. Church, I wonder what we're willing to suffer for. I know we're willing to suffer for fit bodies. I was out there on the treadmill this week. My legs ache because of it. I know we're willing to suffer for a comfortable retirement as we put money away instead of spending it now. I know we're willing to suffer for our kids. I know we're willing to suffer in order to protect and promote our reputation. Are we willing to suffer the gospel. Paul says that this marks him out as a servant of the gospel. And honestly, as I was studying this all week, I had to ask myself, how do I suffer for the gospel? You all pay me a really good salary. And I, I, I don't suffer financially. I, I live in a country in which I'm, I'm free to be a Christian. we we do need to understand that our context is different from Paul's. We we live in a context of religious liberty. Christianity is long present and established. So there's certain ways in which he suffered that, I don't know, in my day-to-day life, I don't suffer. And I suspect you don't either. But I think one thing that hasn't changed is the need to be willing to suffer the world's disdain for what we believe and for who we follow. I think what hasn't changed is the need to sacrifice worldly comforts for gospel progress, to send people out, to, to see new churches planted, to see pastors trained so that they can build up the people of God, that the gospel might go forward. could that mark me more? How could that mark us more? That'd be a worthy conversation over lunch today with whoever you're having lunch with. I'm struck that Paul points to these things as evidence of his faithfulness, especially when I think about the sorts of things that evangelicals look at, right? We we think faithfulness, success in ministry will mean cultural power, cultural influence. We think it means well-appointed buildings and overflowing churches. There's, there's the evidence of success. But as I read Paul this week, I couldn't help but find myself thinking, whose wisdom does that really sound like? Does the wisdom of power does the wisdom of influence, does the wisdom of wealth sound like the wisdom of the cross? Or does it sound like the wisdom of the world? Now lest and this is just for some of you. Some of you need to really like sit in what I just said about how can we be marked by suffering more. But some of you need to hear me say, We shouldn't confuse suffering for the gospel with an ascetic mentality, a suffering for suffering's sake. And that that suffering for suffering's sake will demonstrate my faithfulness. To to those of you perhaps of more tender conscience, you, you, you need to remember where Paul started this conversation here, not with suffering, but with the humility that's produced by the gospel. Everything we have, we've received. If we are humbled by the gospel, then it is humility, not asceticism, that will teach us how and when and where we're called to suffer for the gospel. Servants of the gospel suffer for the gospel. Paul says that's how they should think about him. And it's, I'm telling you, it's how you should think about the elders of this church. But according to Paul, it's also how you should think about yourself. That's the third point. Servants of the gospel suffer for the gospel. And so should you. Look at verse 14. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. For you may have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I've sent Timothy to you. He's my dearly loved and faithful child of the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk, but the power of those who are arrogant. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? This is Paul's conclusion and his is brief and so will mine be. Despite his sarcasm, he's not trying to shame them. He's trying to warn them for their benefit. They're, they're in danger. They're in danger of deceiving themselves. They're in danger of going off on the wrong path. Instead of looking down on Paul or being ashamed of him in his weakness and his suffering, Paul says, no, you should imitate me. Verse 16. And Paul says in that call to imitate me, look, I'm, I'm just acting like your father because I am your father, not your biological father, but, but, but their spiritual father. He knows that there've been lots of instructors that have come through Corinth there in verse, verse 15. We might call them babysitters. It's, 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 it's literally the word that we would use for like babysitter or nanny, you know, a child minder who was with the kids a lot and would teach them manners and basics, but didn't have any real authority in their life. Not like the parents. No, Paul says, look, you came to faith through my preaching. I'm your father in Christ, and so I am doing what fathers do. Fathers warn. Fathers encourage. Fathers say, follow my example. Because I've been there before. I know what I'm talking about. So so let me let me just pause then. Because I've been talking to the church a lot. And let me just say to you, friend, if you're if you're not a Christian, today is the day to hear the good news of the gospel and to be born again as a child of God. This is what happened to the Corinthians when Paul preached there. It is what can happen for you today as I am preaching. The good news of the gospel is that your situation is way worse than you know. You have a holy God who is rightly angry at your sin. And will vindicate his holiness by judging it. But you are also more loved than you deserve. For that same God took on your flesh, became a man in the person of Christ, lived the life you should have lived, died the death that you deserve but cannot bear to die, and was raised again. So that you today, if you will repent of your pride, your prideful rejection of God, and instead put your faith in Christ and his death and resurrection for you, you can become a child of God. Born again, forgiven, adopted into God's family. Nothing would give me greater joy than becoming your spiritual father in Christ today. But I don't say that for my joy. I say it for yours because nothing will give you greater joy than coming into a right relationship with the God who made you, who died for you, if you will repent and believe in him. Come and talk to me about this afterwards. I'd love to talk to you more about it. Paul concludes by by explaining that he sent Timothy with this letter, not to spy on them, but to remind them, to encourage them. And then he includes, concludes with this warning, a warning to those who won't listen, to the arrogant. He says, if the Lord allows it, I'm coming to Corinth for a visit, and then we're going to see who's really powerful in the kingdom of God. They've dismissed him as a nothing burger. It's completely insignificant in comparison to the great Apollos and all of his rhetoric. Paul says, yeah, talk is cheap. And the kingdom of God is not about talk. It's about spiritual power. And he knows that in the weakness of his flesh and the apparent weakness of the cross, the power of God is at work. And so he warns them and he gives them a choice. Will he come with a rod of correction or will he come in love and gentleness? And I think in this question, Paul is continuing to imitate Christ even as he calls them to imitate him. For indeed, Christ came in weakness and in love to save all who will trust in him. But Christ will return one day with power and with all authority. Revelation chapter 19 verse 15 says a sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. When Jesus comes, And he is coming. Will he come with the rod of judgment for us? For us individually? Or this church? Or will he come in gentleness and in love? The choice is ours. Will we gladly embrace the weakness of the cross? Will we gladly become fools for Christ? Or will we pursue the folly of this world's wisdom? You see, the Christian life is a life of imitation. But be careful who you imitate. For your choice of imitation reveals what you really value. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Fathers, we shrink back so often in our lives from suffering even in small ways for the sake of the gospel. We betray the folly of our hearts. We betray that we have valued other things more than Christ. Or we pray that you would allow us to see Christ in all of his beauty and all of his glory for who he is, that we would see Christ as worthy of our lives, worthy even of our suffering. Lord, may the elders of this church be men who are worthy of imitation because they have taken this to heart and are imitating Christ. And Lord, may our imitation of Christ be not for our advantage, not for our glory, but for his. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.